0: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free, Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 337 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a wonderful conversation with... Tony Award-winning actor Frank Wood. Mr. Wood and I discuss what led him to becoming an actor, a way to express oneself, his political family, in particular his father as President Johnson's Undersecretary for Housing and Urban Development, the Great Society Program, and the play he is in at present, on Broadway, titled The Great Society. We discuss hypocrisy, President Carter, 45, playing Roy Cohn, the difference between working on TV, stage, and film, his way, his theory of acting, so to speak, his favorite playwright, and how language is behavior, among other things. A fantastic conversation this week with Tony Award-winning actor and great citizen, Frank Wood. We have an EW essay titled Autumn 2019. An essay from our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavese, titled Chasing Rainbows. And a poem by yours truly called Spike. All of this, as is always the case, is imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 337 of Troubadours and Raconteurs. 1919. The Great Society, as a dream, in the late 1960s was crafted in a small way via the federal government in the USA, only to be attacked philosophically as well as methodically by those who harbor fear as a means to fuel and justify dominance and implications of racial, class-defined supremacy. I know it is pretty obvious that we here between Canada and Mexico are trying to understand the social strife we are within. Are you a nationalist, a humorist, a humanist, a racist, a cultural imperialist? Are you a lover or a fighter? Are you a community builder or a blighter or perhaps a gentrifier? Is the way of a better world to be found in the cosmopolitan city? Is it in the bucolic countryside? How shall we citizens imbibe? To what credo and sets of mores would be best for us to abide? Does the dude in the robe know? Does the dudess homeschooling her brood know better instead? The great society has a reality that is not yet dead, though, as of late, its high-minded construct has been turned upside down, shaken and dropped on its big, dreaming head
1: fact and body said Dip, get back jack well you gotta be tough but there's a good time to be happy i'd like to think everybody here knows that so let's talk about a place that you might not know just a little further on up the road where well, you know about me baby let's get down to the bars. tell you about a place
0: Frank Wood, is that you? It is me. Oh, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. My pleasure. Before we get started, let me give the folks a little background information. Okay. Frank Wood is an actor. He's the recipient of the 1999 Tony Award for Best Performance by an Actor in a Featured Role in a Play for his role as Gene in Sideman. Mr. Wood has performed extensively on Broadway, off Broadway, and in London's West End. He has been seen on film in Gold, Changeling, Taking of Pelham, One, Two, Three, Dan in Real Life, Thirteen Days, Pollock, People I Know, in America, Down to You, Royal Tenenbaums, Greetings from Tim Buckley, and The Missing Person. Mr. Wood's television credits include The Newsroom, The Good Wife, Modern Family, Elementary, Blue Bloods, The Nick, Girls, Flight of the Concords, Grey's Anatomy, The Sopranos, and Law and Order SVU. Presently, Mr. Wood is performing on Broadway at the Vivian Beaumont Theater in the Great Society, portraying Senator Everett Dirksen. Troubadours and Tours is happy to have on the program Frank Wood.
2: Thank you. That
0: was great. <laughs> oh, it's pretty impressive, sir. Thank you for being on the program. Oh well, well, my, you bet. You bet. Let's get uh, let's start at the beginning so to speak. Uh, what led you to becoming an actor, would you say?
2: I would I would guess probably birth order in a family in which I was the youngest. I was the only boy, two older sisters and two parents who were not performers officially themselves, both had, you know, extroverted qualities and then I, w- I think on top of that, sensing that uh, acting was a way to get at something I didn't otherwise have, or, you know expression of self, of uh, finding an emotional life that maybe was repressed most of the other time. And so a combination of a permission to be a performer because of my place in my family and then the need to become a performer because uh, there were elements of my growing up which were maybe you know more repressed than necessary.
0: Hmm, I understand. But
2: now, I mean, and a little, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, you know, a psychological profile, I guess. But I saw, you know, I didn't grow up, my family, we weren't big theater goers. But, um, but I met, I found in early, on, like in, in school and then in a church group. And then uh, in some weekend programs, I found, you know, acting, the thing I was drawn to. Uh, and, uh, and I went to a high school that used the, it was not a, theater based school at all but it used theater very conscientiously as a social binder it was a small school that that emphasized people living in a community together and it used the play it had every year it had an all school play and the old, so you either acted in it or you were in the orchestra where they always had music even if it was a straight play or you worked on the crew or in costumes or light so the the school had an ethos around that they, they used theater to emphasize that ethos and so that that school which is in, in Williamstown, Massachusetts called Buxton School um, I think helped me sort of formulate theater as, uh, as my way my way to be who I needed to be
0: I, I love it so it, it was an outlet that thankfully you were able to, to uh, be afforded otherwise yes. who knows
2: yeah right well well like definitely what it definitely what it did that might not have, I went so I was in a you know a regional theater I mean not a regional theater a regional high school. Uh, For my freshman year, I went to public public schools all my life through my freshman year of high school, and then I began to kind of tank, just sort of uh, do no work, feel no sort of motivation, and my parents were able to uh, send me to boarding school, which I was excited about at the time, and this little boarding school was sort of adorable and served my, you know, fed my idea of me being a sort of bohemian or, you know, an artsy person, I guess, but the. Theater there really, it, because it made you feel like it was part of a, of a of a great work, so being part of a of a sort of elevated society, I think it drew me uh, to it in that way as well. You know.
0: And this was back in, what would you say, in the nineteen seventies?
2: Yeah, this is uh, right. I graduated seventy nine. Um, it took me five years to get through high school, but uh, so I graduated seventy nine. Was there from seventy five to seventy nine? Yeah.
0: And then twenty years later, you win the Tony Award. Yes, yes. Pretty amazing. <laughs> nice work. Thank you. <laughs> now, uh, let's let's talk about your family a bit, uh, and then I'll get us into some of the, the shows you've been in and you're in right now. Uh, you have a political family, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. I mean, uh, your sister's a senator out of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a governor in uh, New Hampshire. Right. Uh, your dad, he worked um, in... Uh, the at the executive branch level in our federal government yeah the- he
2: was the he was right he was the first undersecretary of housing and urban development so the it was really conceived in the johnson administration and my dad and a guy named robert c weaver who was his immediate boss the secretary were the kind of in a ways the developers the founders of hud and um so yes the dad who was a political scientist by training with background in economics uh, and cities in particular and urban development um he uh he he brought those skills to the Johnson administration, to the Great Society,
0: and and that you know, by the way, something to be proud of, of course. The Great Society, some mm-hmm. great, some wonderful programs that uh, came out of mm-hmm. that that phase of of our uh, political history, uh, social history, uh, and in now you're in a, a production that is called the Great Society,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and right. and you play uh, an attorney. A, that
2: uh, well, I play, I played Everett Dirksen, who was a, the my, the minority leader at that time. I'm sorry, uh, yes, he was a Republican. Uh, I'm sure he ha- he might have had a law degree, for all I know. Uh, yeah. but he uh, he was the the Republican uh, leader who in, the, in during that uh, administration was in the minority, mm-hmm. and uh, but but whose vote, but but whose skill in that position made him very important to Linda Johnson, because there was. Uh, he couldn't get uh, most of the great society um, policies passed without Republican votes.
0: Right. I, I just assume these days that all oh, politicians are attorneys. <laughs> but yeah. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> I know it's
2: easy to do. My sister's an attorney.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah. Your sister is a, an attorney. That's a, she's impressive in her own right. So you have all of this really great personal experience. Uh, with with your father and uh, and such to help inform what you're doing in in this production of the Great Society. Tell us a bit about how that is happening. Is it do you do you uh, tap into it?
2: Well, I you know I assume I do. I think in some ways it it's daunting because I know that even as I lived through, you know I was in a family that was in D.C during the Johnson administration and my father certainly talked to talk about uh, and I heard a few stories about his experience with Johnson and and the kind of political infighting that goes on at many levels in government Um, I also was aware that I was a somewhat distracted absent uh, uh, person you know who didn't think who didn't follow up on all this information you know and a part of my background is sort of being this the spoiled younger brother who Thinks about you know I don't know thinks about himself a lot so I I every now and then I think yes of course I'm informed by this stuff and I can remember my dad talking about uh, one one cabinet meeting where the price of a of an aircraft carrier that they were going to requisition was uh, m- mentioned and my dad said Mister President that's the entire budget for model cities which was part you know a sub program of the Great Society that my dad was in charge of to some degree and and. My dad found himself two weeks later chairing a like a convention of real estate brokers or something in East Texas because, as punishment for speaking out of turn, essentially. Oh. Uh, so that's the kind. of So that I remember very clearly. My dad loved Johnson. My dad. I mean, he. I think these these are sort of war stories for him that make that he was with pride because he admired Johnson's willingness to kind of do whatever he could to get what he could for what he thought was. The best outcome. Um, it backfired, you know, and the play, The Great Society, is a beautiful illustration of how that is, has a tragic element to it, you know, that the, the personality, the skills of the individual with the most power are not always enough to get what you need. And uh, and so my dad admired Johnson and, in some ways, I think, emulated him later when he became president of the University of Massachusetts and in other politically oriented jobs that required. Required dealing with other political entities and personalities, and I think he thought of you know he thought about how to leverage what he could under uh, for what he thought was the best outcome, you know, uh, and that had a political quality to it. And so, yes, I have a lot of you know I remember the political atmosphere even though I was a, a small boy, and I remember also the virtue that my parents associated with political service, um, in spite of some of the hypocrisies.
0: Well, there's always going to be a bit of hypocrisy. I think it's human, but you yeah. know, you're, you're right? <laughs>
2: yes. But, well, I think so. But of course, it doesn't mean we have to condone it. But but you no. can't. Um, you can't imagine a world, and you can't. I think, for example, my father felt that Jimmy Carter was ineffective because Jimmy Carter was uh, more not puritanical, but um,
0: micromanager, more
2: self-righteous. You know, and uh, and he felt that that he felt that Carter's suffered from not being you know not being able to play not being able to figure out what his political card what his cards were to play and how to play them
0: and you know I don't even want to go here let's just like put a time limit on this like maybe 60 seconds okay Tr- trump yeah and <laughs> you know in comparison you're talking about Carter you're talking about right. uh, Johnson and we can go with everybody in between how, how how do you look at trump
2: well trump he blows things up because he John. I mean, one of the things that you can look at most of these successful or failed presidencies as people with super egos. I mean, they they recognized the world that the world outside them existed, and that they existed as for whatever, however much they may have, thought, whatever they might have thought of themselves, they may have thought of themselves as the most important person in the room or the smartest person in the room. But they also knew there was a whole room. And that there were people that they were serving outside it, and they had, that they were subject to forces larger than themselves. And Trump refuses. He may respond. I mean, he may be scared of people. He may be, you know, he may be incredibly insecure. But he doesn't recognize that insecurity. He doesn't recognize that he has a place in a larger universe. He only responds to what makes him feel small, and uh, and personally small, as opposed to or what, and what might make him feel bigger. Nothing about how he might how he might act in the service of something greater than himself. And uh, that to me is the essential difference. I mean, there's so much uh, hypocrisy. I don't think Trump is even a hypocrite. Trump is the, he's exploded the notions uh, of the the sort of the terms of engagement by saying, I don't care what you think of me. You know, I have my, you know, I'm loved by a few people and their love, you know, is all I need. Uh, So those are my thoughts about Trump.
0: I appreciate it. We'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, he's, he's much less of a, of a leader and of a thinker than even the folks that we don't like very much that were president. Uh, he's just right. the, the bar is so much lower with him. Um, so how about Roy Cohn? You also played uh, him, and he was somebody that is a significant, right. I mean, during the McCarthy era. Joseph McCarthy mm-hmm. he was his chief counsel during uh, the, the hearings uh, Army McCarthy hearings in 1954 How was it like playing that individual? probably far from where you're at as a person, but I mean that's probably exciting to be able to portray that
2: Yeah well, one thing about playing Roy Cohn is that Roy Cohn is that particular role was written by Tony Kushner, and so oh, surprise you said, yeah you know the most you get an incredibly well really well written character to play first of all. And then the elements that are historically accurate of which, you know, many of them were based on what I read and what I've known about Ray Cohn, uh, uh, that it's a, I would say now, if I had to play Ray Cohn now, I'm not sure I would look forward to it. But at the time I was something, it was like playing a or playing another, um, sort of great classical character, uh, the i looked forward to the terrible things i would enact and do and say and i i can't entirely explain why why that would be but there was um there's always for an actor it's always dynamic to play something you know it's inherently dynamic to play somebody who says awful things and dares you to object you know uh and is smart enough and uh, truthful enough to um to, uh, you know, I guess to, to dare you to come up with a better argument in the face of his own arguments, his own racism or his own. So I enjoyed playing that role, but I also took the most out of me, both in preparing for it, even auditioning for it and preparing it and doing it. I was the, it was, um, they left me with the most bruises, you
0: know because you had to uh, go against your nature or because you had to dig so deep to make it a genuine, sort of passionate, dynamic portrayal?
2: I think because he got right. I mean, that's a really good question. And I think it has mostly to do with the way in which he chooses to offend those around him. Uh, I think it has to do... And, and yeah, I, yes, it does go against my nature, but I think it also tapped into problem. I mean, when you talk about acting as a, as a way of getting around your own repressed nature, I'm sure... The, the anger and volatility that I did not express is that I don't express in my everyday life gets a little bit of access there. And then that, that to realize that I have that, that Roy Cohn of all people could be, could be something I might identify with uh, is upsetting and bruising. And I think that the, and then just using the words he used against other people uh, taking this now away from, from, you know, what I, uh any outlet but the, the the destructive nature of his language was hurtful you know and it, the good thing about theater is that it provides a you know a ritualistic setting for these things so they have a place to to go and you don't have to claim them as your own when you leave the theater but for the time that you do express those feelings in the theater you are you are hitting yourself a little bit not just the people around you you know we had an experience in the in a great society when we first had to in, in, enact the um, Selma, the Pettus Bridge, uh, Selma to Montgomery March, and all these people in riot gear come out to confront the marchers, you know, a lot of the African American cast were saying, this is going to be difficult. And I said something like, what can we do to make it better? And, and uh, Nicole Salter said, well, I'm not just worried about us, I'm worried about you too. I'm worried about what it's going to be like for you to enact this, you know. And I thought, oh, right this is hurtful to us it's not just white people hurting black people it's people of a you know common you know common who share this society together and share uh similar points of view about the world um, enacting something which they're hurting each other or which one side is hurting another and that is to a to you know to well-meaning people that's going to be painful um and so that is why Roy Cohn is painful, yeah. Uh, but I, uh, of course, took pride in 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 engaging with that. You
0: know? Yeah, of course, because you then breathe life into a rendition, a, a close one, I presume, of what this individual was like, and it, it gives people that didn't know firsthand a sense of it, and and maybe you know affects people in a, in a certain way, and in their understanding of. Of uh, the gravity of the situation back then, and the gravity yeah. of that kind of behavior to society and to individuals.
2: Exactly, you know? exactly, and it also and and just in, and in, and it's vital to the play to the to the, the journey that Prior Walter has to make in that play, uh, and many other characters that the Roy Cones of this world existed. If that's not illustrated fully, then you don't understand just what it took for Prior Walter to go from a private citizen to. And I mean, he remains a private citizen in the play, but I mean, to become a theatrical brave character who does things that are difficult to do, because he had to face down this the strains of Roy Cohn in this world that were were running through the, you know through his his life, his, his daily experience, you know.
0: Yeah, and uh, we still have those kinds of folks, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> in the world. And well, uh,
2: yeah, you know, I don't think that'll go away. But no. whether we can be, you know, how articulate and strong we can be, will you know make a difference.
0: Exactly. Well stated. We're talking to actor Frank Wood on the program, and um, I, I'm wondering, uh, how does it uh, feel, or how does how do you experience differently uh, doing your work? Your craft, you're your expressing yourself as an artist on film, on stage for television. Is it much different from one uh, genre to the next?
2: It is to me. I mean, it's the more you do it, the more you can close the gap. I think, but the the difference initially is logistical. Uh, ma- making a play and making a TV show are so different that the that if you haven't done one and just the other, it's disorienting. The thing, you know, the skills you bring to the job don't get the same uh, time and space. So you, so for me anyway, I, it's very hard or has been hard to relax in front of a camera uh, when I still haven't understood when I haven't been given much time to integrate language and circumstances uh, uh, into my psyche, my imagination, my body. And I, and, and it's hard to know, uh, you know, in a play where you get the four, let's say it's uh, not true anymore, but let's say you get four weeks of rehearsal and, uh, some previews in that time you've been integrating your performance with other people's performances and you've been talking about the play, the content of the play and in most of the TV and film work I've done, you are, A, I don't have as, usually have as large roles as I do in theater and B, you just, you show up and you begin to do work that day. You do smaller chunks of work so that's an, that's something you can take, you know, you and you've got time on the set to kill so you use it if you can with the language you have to speak and letting your imagination cook a little bit. But it's a shorter period of time in which you're going to put your performance out there. And so it's taken me most of my career to reckon you know, to find how that can be as much fun as going into a rehearsal space with actors for a play.
0: So obviously you prefer stage work, that process? I
2: prefer it. I mean I, I overall yes, although the more the, the more film and TV work I get the more I enjoy it and, and and in some cases the more I enjoy the differences so you know so if you get to do both if you get to weave these different things in and out of your life then you you can enjoy the contrast but it takes the it takes the experience and yes the time spent on a set where you're you don't know when you're going to work because they're they've got also so many technical things to work out with camera and lights and other things it's, it's Say nothing of shooting schedules where you know one location is available where it wasn't before um those things uh you just have to get you have to have time getting used to that and i would say that if i spent the next rest of my life working film and television i'm sure i would find a sort of uh, a beauty in that too but theater is where i've learned how to be an actor and that's definitely where i recognize the territory much much more easily
0: you are listening to Troubadours and Rock-On-Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. And do you do you have a theory of acting? Would you say?
2: Well, I definitely. You know, when you separate, I went to NY. I went to Wesleyan University as part of their theater program, and I went to NYU's graduate acting program. And the things that I've remember that I come back to again and again is that you need repetition you need uh gestation you know time for the same the words you've said and the circumstances you've encountered to grow inside you and you definitely need to make active choices positive act tra- active choices that uh don't require you to think how am i going to say this line but allow you to have a reason for saying this line or a need to say this line and those so essentially i would say i have a psychologically based acting approach uh and it is informed by the by NYU, probably most particularly, and the, the main teacher we had there, Ron Van Loo, would have said something like American realism is. He was he did not believe in a he had a, a specific approach exactly, but he tried to hone it down. He said something like American realism, where you try to be as truthful uh, to the words as you can be, use the words to find out what your who your character is and what the circumstances are, and then. Like most actresses, a bunch of technical stuff that goes with that, and finding an operative word in a sentence that helps you ground yourself, or um, or uh, you know coming to a full stop, and not requiring you know when you get a when you see the punctuation, you use the punctuation because that also has organic origins, you know, uh, and listening uh, and being present, you know, so that it's a more like a potpourri of things, and I the best thing about it is that if I feel awkward and like i'm not doing a good job i stop and i check in with one of those things i say am i listening as usually am i listening and am i breathing like those are the two things that come up the most often you know uh if i if i'm not doing one of those things then doing those things really makes a big difference
0: and i think uh, that one of the words you mentioned really uh allows you to to do both and that's as you said to be
2: present yes Being present, which is a hard thing to define until, you know, but you can you can say, hey, I'm not being present. And you'll know, you know, you'll know what that means at the time. Yeah, If you're not listening
0: and if you're not breathing, you're not, you know, you're not you're not present. Uh, Right. Right. And and, you know, I I want to ask you a question that I asked one of your um, contemporaries. Well, he's he's older than you, uh, I suppose, by a bit. Uh, but uh, you guys probably cross paths and uh, know each other. Austin Pendleton, he's been on the show a couple of times, and yeah, uh, I I asked he's a great guy, and I, I asked him uh, one time who his favorite uh, playwright was, or I gave him you know the, some of your favorites, and he just gave me one, and he told me why. And uh, if you if you'd like to answer that one, I wouldn't mind hearing
2: your answer. Sure, I would. Ha- I mean, I have to go with, with Chekhov. Um, uh, He's the sort of the the beginning of the 20th century for a lot of uh, plays. He's the one who understood that, or, or maybe I don't know how well he understood it, but he used the idea that language is not just information, it's also behavior. You know, that when people talk, they're not always just telling you what you need to know. They're telling you a lot of stuff that... Uh, they um, they're, they may be failing to tell you something as they talk, you know, they, but their uh, language is behavior and the unconscious uh, was something that could be dramatized as well as the conscious so that not everything had to be about um, what you already knew people intended to do, but the unintended consequences of something were as much a part of the dramatic shape of a play as the intending consequences. Uh, and that just is incredibly. It, 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 his plays continue to sort of make that interesting, make those, things, make human beings interesting for who they are, not just what they're going to do. Um, and so I, I don't. I'm. I, I like Chekhov. And uh, after that, there's. It's a fairly typical. You know, there' the Tony Kushner, the Sarah Rule, but um, I, I think I'd start with Chekhov.
0: Great, thank you, thank you. Do you want to know who Austin said? Who? Uh, Tennessee Williams.
2: Tennessee Williams. Well, that's yeah, Yeah, a great one.
0: Yeah, I figured. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Oh, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I Tennessee Williams was the first playwright uh, that somebody apart, you know, apart from Shakespeare, uh, Tennessee Williams was the first playwright to sort of make the. Poetry of of ordinary people, you know. He was able to dramatize poetry. I think uh, contemporary American poetry. But uh, anyway,
0: yeah. All. Well, that's basically you know you, that's basically yeah. what Austin said. You're, you know, you guys are on the Fair. same page there, literally. Yeah. Um, so, believe it or not, time is just about up for this go round. Uh, Frank Wood, actor extraordinaire, and really uh it sounds to me like a good citizen and a socially uh, conscious uh individual and it's it's a pleasure talking with you for for those folks who are out there listening and uh you know are acting and and the like can you give them a little bit of hope a little direction as to how they can keep it going and maybe you know uh enjoy enjoy their work
2: well that i you know some of the the work that are I've enjoyed the most has been the work that happened before uh side which was itself, you know, which did change my life. But the, the work that I did, for example, with an organization called East coast artists was made up almost entirely of people from NYU, people I'd worked with or, or been class, you know, classmates with. And, and I fell in with them after a period of, you know, I came back, I'd been at a regional theater for a couple of years, came back to New York and the work I did as before, before, before uh, the more famous work happened was deeply satisfying and it was multi-layered full of, and it was also full of unintended consequences. Um, But there was work I did with friends and with people who were all trying to make work for its own sake. And so make the work you can make, you know, I always went where people wanted me. I didn't spend a lot of time knocking on doors where people may or may not have wanted me. I kind of went where I already, where I knew to train a little bit and then, took a few leaps of faith with people i i liked you know and so east coast artists we did a bunch of of plays that i could never imagine doing now but which had small but deeply appreciative audiences uh and so i would say make the work you want to make uh and then and then you know hope for the best
0: wonderful thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you frank
2: Well, thank you, Lawrence. It was a real pleasure for me, too. I really, I I like, I'm grateful that you asked me to do this. It makes me feel good.
0: Oh, yeah, and me as well, me as well. And uh, I want everybody to, again, keep in mind that presently, Frank Wood is performing on Broadway at the Vivian Beaumont Theater in the Great Society, portraying Senator Everett Dirksen. It's in previews now until October, I believe, right?
2: Uh, That's right. That's right. And it occurred to me that, of course, Everett Dirksen was a lawyer. I just uh, I, I, realized as we were in the conversation, yes, he was indeed a lawyer. Excellent. that's what he wanted to do when he retired. <laughs>
0: oh, good, good. I wasn't totally wrong. Yeah.
2: No, you were right. As right. I misunderstood the direction of the question.
0: Yeah. No, you were wonderful. Thank you so much, oh. sir. Thank you for taking time Thank out. Thank you. I hope we cross paths again. Either way, break a leg. Sure.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: The big time, take me on a roller coaster, take me for an airplane ride, take me for a six-day one but don't you, don't you pull my pilot side beside? Watch me reel and make the beat, Baby James and Uncle Fook, 'cause we are buying now to be. Yeah, you're so chic, tell you where well, love we. Babies of the mountains, streamlined Midnight you can see the flaws Dance the cha cha through to sunrise Open up to the support of our Just like the windows look the same So me and you, just me too, got to search for something
2: new
3: Chasing Rainbows. Why, Kermit the Frog asked us long ago, are there so many songs about rainbows? Maybe the better question is why are there so many versions of Rainbow Connection? Kermit's original, written by Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher for the 1979 Muppet movie, has spawned, over the decades, version after version after version. The legendary Willie Nelson, the raunchy yet standard-loving Seth MacFarlane, the drag artist Charles Bush, the tragic Karen Carpenter, the jazz singer Jane Monheit, the earnest folky Sarah McLaughlin. And that's just the famous or semi-famous singers off the top of my head and doesn't account for the many amateurs who recorded the song in their bedroom, playing a ukulele perhaps and with unicorn posters on their walls and then uploaded it to YouTube our collective campfire sing-along. Well, why not have all these versions? Everyone sings about rainbows. Remember Al Jolson? No, of course not. Once, back in the beginning of the last century, he was one of the most popular entertainers in the world, and he sang a song about rainbows around his shoulder and a sky of blue above. And then he was felled by time and fashion. And now he's canceled forever because his act was based on blackface and racist minstrel tropes. Or how about Leslie Gore's Sunshine, Lollipops, and Rainbows? A sugar rush of a song from 1963 that bouncily lists rainbows, among other smile-inducing items. What could be more delightful than standing in the sunshine after the rain, enamored by a rainbow, "'and sucking on a lollipop. "'As Leslie knew, night will come, "'the rainbow will fade, "'and the lollipop rots your teeth. "'Judy Garland gave us the gold standard, "'as it were, in Rainbow Songs, "'or rather Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg did, "'in Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. "'That song transcends endless viewings of the movie, and the sad story of Judy's life. Dorothy yearns to leave the black and white world of Kansas for a technicolor land elsewhere. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, she sings before being whisked away to the land of munchkins, witches, and weird companions, why, oh, why can't I? Because you can't. In Dorothy's case, You'll end up back in your own bed, surrounded by your clueless aunt and uncle, a traveling mountebank, and three equally weird farmhands. Or, in Judy's case, dead in a rented house in London at 47, after a lifetime of triumph, tragedy, found and lost loves, and drug abuse. I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, a vaudeville song written by Harry Carroll and Joseph McCarthy, and sung by Garland in the 1941 film Ziegfeld Girl is even more plaintive than her signature tune. In the movie, Judy plays Susan Gallagher, a talented young singer, too plain to be a glamorous Ziegfeld girl, who is coached by her father, Pop Gallagher, an aging and out-of-step vaudevillian played by Charles Winninger. Pop encourages her to sing in a peppy manner that belies the lyrics. In a poignant scene, Judy slows down the melody, disregarding her father's advice, revealing the sadness in the song, and discovering the maturity of her own singing voice. I am always chasing rainbows, waiting to find a little bluebird in vain. Those damn bluebirds, flitting away over rainbows, taunting us with their carefree gaiety, secure in a happiness that eludes farm girls from the Midwest, torch singers of all stripes, and the rest of us sorrowful, searching humans. What's on the other side? Kermit asks. And the answer is, dead pets. Dogs and cats and rabbits and hamsters and turtles and maybe lizards and rats cross the Rainbow Bridge when they expire. The Rainbow Bridge, new to me, is the pathway to the beyond for beloved non human companions, a sort of river sticks for pets. They take leave of us, and rather than say, going to a farm upstate, why would your beagle enjoy life on a hard Scrabble farm when he spent so many happy hours on your couch, I wonder? They make their way over the bridge to a serene and happy afterlife, presumably filled with bacon treats. Belly scratches, slow-moving squirrels, an enticing, all-encompassing sense. The Rainbow Bridge is more for us than for our pets, of course. It's a comfort, and we need all the comfort we can get. I was quite close to a labradoodle named Bella, and I relished the vision of Bella slowly trotting over the bridge, perhaps once looking back and gazing at me in farewell, with her sad, wise, brown eyes. Find those bluebirds, Bella.
4: Them all right down to my soul. Looked well into the depth of a hole. pondered perpetual motion in the echo, just like a song. If the repeats were long, loved you all a long, long while. Looked down. So am I, round them up into a mixed bag. Then give him a glass of water Give him a cherry pie
0: Hamstring hurts her because she did not tell her coach that the powerful spike over the net that came up from the tips of her toes through the breath of her nose, fiercely executed via shoulder, elbow, and open hand, had tweaked a bit in excess that tendon-tight band.
5: Being born Right here in this room Press the button Of world peace And wipe out everything But the moon kanto shikata Like a flower On an eastern block Living from good here to good here That's all the love that some of us know That's all the love some know All the death in my house Makes it easy to shop online Where the signal is strong And the tech flows like wine And I know you've traveled far But you're still where you are Look out Thousand years finally letting us that's all the world that some of us know. That's all the world some know will be over again less I fear anyone I see and yet all the more I fear you human...
0: and there you have it episode 337 of troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, actor and artist extraordinaire, Frank Wood. Our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavise, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grapelli, Case Lang Veers, Justin Towns Earl, Roxy Music, Kurt Vile, Evandra Banhart, and of course, Terence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week, let's give it a go, and try to enjoy this one.